Welcome back to the Heart Podcast, everyone. This is episode three of season two, and today Milagros and I will be focusing on Ante Reese's teaching through music. We both approach the theme of music from different angles given our upbringings, yet we have both been exposed to and practiced music in very unique ways. That's right, Omar. You and I have grown up having music as a constant part of our lives, in our homes and with our families. And I'm really excited to have this conversation today about music. On today's episode, we have two fantastic guests. We have Dr. Joseph Abramo, who is an Associate Professor of Music Education in the NIAC School of Education. He teaches undergraduate courses in instrumental methods and graduate courses in the theoretical foundations of music education and popular music, as well as informal learning. In addition, he teaches student teaching seminars related to music. His area of research includes popular music, music teacher education, gender, cultural studies, race and multiculturalism, disability studies, and more. He is also the co-author of the book Music Teacher Evaluation, a guide for teachers in the U.S., published by the Oxford University Press. Alongside Dr. Abramo, we are also joined by Dr. Joyce McCall. She's an assistant professor at Arizona State University, where she teaches undergraduate and graduate courses in the School of Music, Dance, and Theater. Dr. McCall's research draws on critical race theory and double consciousness theory to explore how race, class, and culture impact educational equity in music education. Through her work, she also examines how certain pedagogies, such as culturally relevant teaching, influences learning outcomes among racially minoritized people in the music classroom. Her latest book chapter, Speak No Evil, Talking Race as an African American in Music Education, has served as a critical tool in inspiring anti-racist work in music education. We are really excited about this conversation. Welcome Joe and Joyce. We would like to begin by acknowledging that the land on which we gather is the territory of the Mohegan, Mashantucket Pequot, Eastern Pequot, Scaticoke, Golden Hill Pawgusset, Nipmuc, and Lenape peoples, who have stewarded this land throughout the generations. You know, it would, it would be really, really great to start our conversation by hearing about the approach that the both of you take broadly to music and how you see anti-racist teaching embedded within it. Um, you know, so uh, Joyce, if if you wouldn't mind uh, starting us off with the question, you know, what are your thoughts on your approach to music, and how you see anti-racist teaching within it? Yeah, so um, I guess I can give an example. Um, I just started at Arizona State, so this is my first semester here, so I don't have digs on <laughs> certain classes that that I would love to teach, um, but when I at the University of Illinois, um, as well as uh, Indiana University, I taught this class called Jazz Methods, um, which is for undergraduate music ed folk, uh, largely in the band or instrumental areas. Um, After I got to Illinois, um, one of the things that I wanted to do was to find ways to teach jazz the way that I grew up learning jazz. Um, I'm from Mobile, Alabama. Uh, When I learned how to play jazz, my middle school band director, director, uh, Louis Coxum, he was a bone player. And he played doing Mardi Gras all the time in these brass bands that would come down the street. And 
his take on it was, and everyone else who I knew, even in my church, about jazz in terms of musicians, it's like, you know, you got to listen to what you're hearing. But also jazz is, is their stories that are being told, their stories of people, their stories of your, your culture, your ancestors, but also jazz is very much about movement. And so when I got to Illinois, um, I didn't teach, by the way, I didn't teach this way at Indiana. Uh, at Indiana, I taught very much in parameters that were set before me. Um, and this was my, actually my first teaching gig out of, out of Arizona State. Um, and so I taught within the parameters they gave me, but I felt very, uh, like tied, tied down. Um, I felt like what I was teaching was kind of wrong uh, in my approach to, ju to just simply teaching the music, like the notes, the, the chart. Um, and so when I got to Il Il Illinois, I decided to teach it from another way. Uh, there's a wonderful book chapter in um, performing, teaching music through performance, but it's about jazz. And Ron Carter, who taught at the University of Northern uh, NIU, Northern Illinois University, jazz advocate, his approach is very much multicultural, meaning like you can't teach jazz without looking at the historical backdrop. You can't teach jazz without thinking about the socio-political, socio-cultural context in which jazz grew out of. You can't teach jazz if you yourself can't play jazz, right? And so um, when, I, when I would teach this class, we never started with reading music, ever. We started with, with clapping, with movement, with call and response, uh, with what people frown down upon is rote teaching which actually is a very powerful way of learning music and teaching music. Now, I have to say, maybe this is another question, and maybe Joe's going to talk a little bit about it, but um, to do that in a space like in Illinois, <laughs> or even do it in a, in a space like Indiana, majority of your students are not going to feel it because they're used to, I'm going to read this, this line, and I'm going to look at the upper left-hand corner and read those directions and plug it in. But that's not jazz at all. That's, that's Mozart. That's Beethoven. That's Crusell. And no shade against those artists. But, you know, I wanted students to be able to, to understand what jazz is, but also to know the story, to know the political, socio-political context of jazz, but also know that jazz is very much the, the child of, of the blues. And if you don't know the blues or the, what set the blues up in this country, you don't know jazz. You know, you have to be able to understand that the blues was born out of uh, the experiences of enslaved people in order to understand jazz. You just can't show up and be like, oh, I'm going to I'm going to swing on a Duke Ellington tune. No, you're not. You're just going to play the notes.
And that's not what jazz is. And, and I didn't want students to go out and to not know what it is, what you need to know about jazz beyond just playing the notes, beyond just playing the music or beyond imitation. Because that's what people tend to label jazz as. We're just simply imitating. No, it's beyond imitation. So uh, for me, uh, that's what um, anti-racist, and one example of what anti-racist teaching is, is like we have to look at where did this music come from? Who does it represent? Um, am, I, am I telling the story in the way that the people that it represents would tell their story. And if not, then I'm not, I'm not being anti-racist because you're actually fabricating and manufacturing, neglecting and misappropriating rather than actually telling the story and how it was told. So that's just, just one example. You know, the, the sociopolitical part, I think, is, is such an important part. And I, I like where Joyce kind of ended, because uh, I think when I think about this and I think about music, it has potentials as well as pitfalls, right? So when it comes to anti-racist teaching, it comes to anything, right? But, you know, the, the wonderful thing about music is that it is universal. There is no culture that exists on the human planet that that does not engage in some sort of sound manipulation, nonverbal sound uh, manipulation for expressive purposes, right? And so in that way, it does connect us, right? But in that universality, there's a lot of uh, variation, right? So if you just think about, um, you know, the types of music that we tend to uh, engage in in United States and and uh, largely around the world, it tends to be you know there's a performer and there is a audience and there's a clear division between that and um, you know music is a thing it exists it's there and it's separate from other things and you can go throughout the world and see how that's just not true right like uh, um, you know, the, the cliche that people often bring up is, you know, sort of Ghanaian drumming, right? There is no distinction between the listener and the performer. Everybody just comes into a, a circle or, or any sort of thing and uh, everyone participates. And so there's no, dis there's no clear distinction like we have in classical music or even pop music. Um, and, uh, you know, there's other sorts of things, again, from uh, many African cultures, they don't dis make a distinction between dance and music. It's all kind of one sort of things. The ancient Greeks did that too, the concept of muse, right? The muses, when they talk, that comes from music, right? And they actually, poetics and like theater and all those sorts of things were not a distinction like we make where it's just sound and that sort of thing. We can also use it to express ourselves. These are all wonderful things, right? That I think music is an avenue towards. But I think the other thing that's really important is that music is not an inherent good. It can do some pretty awful things as well, right? And, you know, one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about lately is the ways that, you know, if we're talking about anti-racism or we're talking about any other forms of social justice, music education can play a huge part in that. But at the same time, can also can kind of be like an escape valve. It could be a sort of space in which we get all our anger out 
and we do it through music and then we feel pretty good about it and then we go home and we're not politically active. So, I mean, that's like a sort of danger that kind of happens with things. And I think with music too, the other, the other kind of danger that, that is in it, as well as any other sort of cultural practice is that it's really easy to invite cultures in, but not bodies, right? So it's really quite easy to say, I'm gonna engage in this form of culture or you know, music from this part of the world or music associated with these groups of people, but leave the people who are part of it out, out the door, right? And that's an easy thing to do with culture that I think is something that educators have to always be attuned to that they're not, I mean, J Joyce called it misappropriation. I mean, that's often what we call it. And so I think there's always that sort of danger there as well. So there's positives and negatives. And I think anti-racist teaching is being leveraging the good ones, right? And uh, addressing very overtly the, the, the negative ones or the pitfalls that can happen. No, I was just going to add to what Joe said. Uh, I just completed giving a talk at uh, University of Nebraska, like maybe 20 minutes ago. And we were talking about this very thing. Uh, one of the things that came up was how we use credentialization to keep bodies out. So other people are teaching other people's music, right? Um, and one of the easiest representations of that, we think about jazz, like who's teaching jazz in our institutions? It's oftentimes white folk, but the, the people who are experts in this, the professionals, they're like playing. I mean, when Marcellus does not have a doctorate, it probably has an honorary doctorate, but I mean, when Marcellus is, is sort of like an, an anomaly in a way that any university that gets him, right? Who's not gonna put when Marcellus on their faculty, but also the fact that majority of our programs or even programs who are teaching other people's music are, are white folk. Um, when we think about being anti-racist, that's one of the ways in which our programs actually contribute to being racist as a collective by keeping certain people out, keeping the bodies out. But we pick up, we put the pick up the culture and take it with us. And we misappropriate that culture because we know nothing about it outside of reading about it. Yeah, I, I really, first of all, I really appreciate uh, both of your responses. And I, and I feel Joyce, um, you know, kind of touching on that, that last point that you made. It made me think about my, um, my upbringing. So something that I didn't mention at the, at the beginning of the episode is that I actually have a background in, in music. So I've been playing the saxophone since I was in the third grade. Um, I was on the drum line, you know, and thanks to my dad, I was exposed to the blues and jazz. I mean, you know, from Thelonious Monk to Miles Davis, literally just listening to Miles Davis, you know, James Brown. I mean, so many musicians, but it also made me think of like, how how was music delivered to me uh, in school? And I, I feel like judging judging by the answer that the both of you gave, I feel like I've I've lost uh, or I haven't been exposed to like another dimension to music and specifically jazz, which is the history. Like, how did it, how did it come to be? How did it develop? And, you know, but looking at the positive side, like I've come to learn that music can be such a great vehicle for connections, um, for change and for survival. Even I can't tell you both, like 
how 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 many times like music has been there <laughs> in the toughest of times and it can really fill a void and and in a way it's almost been like another language it's it creates such a great venue to connect with other individuals and for, for a, you know in a variety of ways and for a variety of reasons and i'm just curious you know tap into each of your journeys and really inquire like how did you come to teach the way that you do and in your approach to music was it you know, sometimes, and at least in my personal experience, you know, so I, looking retrospectively, I sometimes look at gaps in my education and it's like, okay, how can I fill those gaps and not replicate those cycles of oppression? Or perhaps did you both pick up on like really innovative ways that you were taught and you want to replicate that to the next generation of scholars and activists? So, um, uh, Joe, would you like to kick us off with that question, please? You know, it's interesting. If you talk to a lot of music teachers, a vast majority of them will talk about their sort of closet music lives. Um, so, I mean, I, I, this story I'm telling you is actually not very uncommon, but it tends to be something like this. I went to school uh, and, you know, I studied saxophone. I studied classical saxophone. I did do a bit of jazz, but I did classical saxophone, which uh, some listeners might say, what is that? <laughs> but it, it exists and I have a master's degree in it, which is crazy. We can talk about that another time. Anyway, um, so I, you know, I played classical music and I played notation and I did all that sort of stuff. And I did all the competitions, which I'll get to again in a second. Uh, but in addition to that, you know, I played in rock bands and I learned from my friends and I listened to pop music. And, you know, the twain shall never meet sort of thing where it was like there was that musical life and then there was this musical life and you know for me personally as as i taught middle school um there became a very distinct moment in which i was able to put those thing, two things together and it transformed my teaching in such a way that i started reaching kids and i realized that uh kids who look like they're apathetic and they didn't like music were actually passionate about music you know so um so, like like I said, so many music teachers sort of have those closeted lives. And I think as a field, we're getting better and better at sort of inviting those closet lives into, into, the, um, into the classroom. But another aspect of it too, like this is a formative experience of mine. So, you know, in most programs, people will know this, that they have this thing called Allstate, right? It's the idea that like the best, best students in a school, in a state can go and audition. And if they, you know, prevail, then they get to go to the honors on, ensemble to Allstate. And I'll never forget, I mean, I, I got into the room, I played my solo, I nailed it. And then I had to do the sight reading, which is they give you music and you just have to play it immediately with, by, just by looking at it. And I remember to this day, I got to the end of the sight reading and the, the judge said, oh, that was great, except you turned a dotted quarter eight sixteenth to a dotted quarter eighth. Anyway, I just made it twice as long as it was supposed to be. And he says, well, you know, so there, and he took a point off and I didn't wind up going to all states. So this was like hugely crushing to me, but um, at the time, but it has made me stronger, right? Uh, but that has been such a formative thing in my sort of thinking is the ways that music education, particularly around the areas of competition and the ways that we measure these sorts of things can be hugely damaging to children. Um, and so, you know, that's, those are the two kind of formative things that kind of form my own 
my own teaching and the ways that I try to address all these issues, anti-racism, social justice, more largely those sorts of things. I think for me, it, it's some of some of the addressing gaps in what I what I observed in terms of teaching in the field. Um, so it was some of being a student like Joe, uh, being a, a music student, but some of it was also being a teacher on the outside of the student experience and facilitating that. Uh, but also observing. So um, I never forget. So I'm from Mobile, Alabama, uh, the South, uh, where just like other regions of the country, uh, schooling is very segregated, even though it is not a legal thing anymore, is it? Um, and so I remember going to band festivals as a high schooler, particularly and I went to a predominantly white high school because of zoning. Um, and that's still very much a part of the thing in Alabama. But I grew up in a black neighborhood. But at any rate, we go to these festivals and the few black people in, in our high school band, we were like, man, where, where are the black schools, right? Where's LaFleur High School, Blunt, Viger, Williamson, all these black schools. And partially, part of it, we were like, man, why do we have to be here? You know, we could be doing something else, else with our Saturdays. We saw it as a, as a punishment. But we began to realize that those festivals and competitions were only set, were set up in a certain way where you had to play music a certain way. You had to have a certain connection with the politics of these state music organizations, like your band directors had to be sort of like in the mix. But we began to realize that they had their own competitions, like black schools had their own competitions and we had ours and it was completely separate. I graduated in 1999. It's still very much like that in Alabama. And I'm sure it's still very much like that throughout the country. And so we, we often had questions like, why is it that it's so separated? Why is it that I don't see, you know, the folks who I grow up in, my, who I, I'm friends with in my own neighborhood, who happen to go to another school, right? Um, I don't see them at the band competitions. But it had so much to do about race and so much to do about the, the history of race in the South or the history of race and racism in my school district. But then I went on to start teaching in Houston, Texas. Um, I taught in a large uh, Latinx uh, school district, a large high school, MacArthur High School. And I remember teaching with two other band directors. I was one of two assistant band directors. And we would go to competitions or I would have to drive to a, a, a neighboring school, which was maybe 10, 15, maybe 20 minutes down the road, but they had a whole nother setup. Like they didn't want for anything. It was a predominantly white school. They, their band fees were like $2,500, something like that. Whereas our kids could barely, could barely buy reads. 
and our fees were like a hundred or one hundred and fifty dollars, and we worked with students who could not pay. Sometimes we'd say, "Well, we understand you can't pay, but we want you to be in band anyway." And we would find ways to waive the fee, but make up for it in a different way. But I begin to see that these kids were treated differently, even when we would go to to festivals, like how people would just look at them. Like they were um, not human, honestly. Um, and how the judges would make comments on our sheets and things of that sort. And I just, I just, it, it really angered me. But also I, I saw like every day, like these kids were brilliant. Like their ability, their musicianship was incredible like they brought home with them to the school but what was really amazing was that i have i was lucky enough to work with um this guy who just retired jose diaz and he was all about making sure that students saw themselves in the music that they played so every tune that they played on the marching band field it was always an arrangement it was never a publication that we purchased from jw pepper that seemed to get it right in terms of the arrangement. Um, but also how he taught. He, he taught from multiple ways, from the art tradition, but also from notation, from the ways in which students engaged in music technology and um, the ways in which they engaged on their devices. Um, I thought that was really interesting but he always kept it real. He always welcomed, um, he talked about real world things in band. It wasn't just about, you need to be in tune, but we talked about how we could even inform students to be financially savvy. Like who talks about balancing a checkbook in band? But we also understood that these students came from, from places in which they did not have access to learning about ways in which to earn money but also the fact that certain structures in society were set up so that they couldn't earn money. But those are the things that we talked about, you know? And so um, even now as a professor, like I don't separate me from, um, from what I do as a professor. Uh, I, I'm a black woman in America and I teach like a black woman in America. So I, and I, and I want students to feel comfortable with who they are. So if, if we illustrate who we are, if we are honest, right. And showing students that this is me as who I am, this is my culture. Then I'm hoping that in some way they are compelled, they are empowered uh, to move forward, to not have to feel like they have to put on a mask to to make it in in this field and because we have so much of that going on anyways so that's that's how i i, I try to teach but certainly it's it's trying to fill those gaps and similar to what joe mentioned is like you know we're trying to to push against those policies and practices that make no sense at all except the agenda is to keep things the same and we know that's that's not helpful.
Thank you, Joyce and Joe, for that um, response in terms of how you came to teach this way and and how you learned to incorporate anti-racist values and principles into your teaching. And I'm really struck by a lot of what you've shared. When I think about musicians, I think they are like real musicians and then there's like other people and that's me. <laughs> but that's not how I grew up related to music, actually. Um, the way I grew up related to music is that everybody's a musician because as soon as you walk into the house, you know, somebody hands you a guido, you just start with the fork and you just start, you know, you, everybody's a part of music making. And even as part of like how we celebrate holidays, you know, like um, in Puerto, I'm from Puerto Rico and in Puerto Rico, you know, they in the holidays do like parandas. So they go from house to house, just banging pots, pans, guidos, whatever you got, like you turn it into an instrument. So talking about finances, like, there's no barrier. Everybody can be a musician. You just grab something, <laughs> like you start making beat with it, and and it's collective. It's it's made in community with community, and and that's how I feel. Like I grew up with music, you know, and understanding music. And it's interesting hearing both of you because because I had zero association with music and school, like school. In fact, I have one memory of music in school and it's so vague. I don't even know what the memory is, except that it was in the basement. And like, I think we did something in that class. I don't know what it was. That's how disassociated, although music is like every day in my life, you know, um, and I think of everyone as a musician, you know, in terms of being able to make music together. So I'm hearing you all saying, you know, things like, you know, access to music and also what forms of music are valid and accepted accepted and i'm thinking also in my experience the first time i went to a real a, a formal you know performance was in college in a first gen program that i was in um for low-income students they took us to a symphony and while i thought it was beautiful it was also like that's different and it was later in graduate school when I went to my first Latin jazz performance and I melted. I was like, wow, like this is so amazing. And so I'm curious how your students respond to what you do because the first time I got excited about music and school coming together for me was in a course that I took that was actually under my, my um, studies under Puerto Rican Caribbean studies about music in the Caribbean. And I actually learned like what you were saying, Joyce, about the history, like the history of bomba and plena and salsa, and, like how we got to the certain moves we make, how music was used as a people's newspaper, like, you know, all of the social political natures of music. I It was so amazing. I was like, wow, why is it that I'm learning this now? And why was this not part of music education? And K through 12, right? So I'm curious how your students respond to what you do in the classroom. So, like I said, with with the like the jazz class that I taught, um, even now, when if I'm teaching like culturally relevant pedagogy or <clears throat> in research or something like that, I always try to find ways to incorporate music. Um, but I find that there some students really enjoy it. Like they really enjoy that exploration, the newness of learning something in a different way and they appreciate it uh, so much so that they ask for more or they, they want to find ways um, so that they can continue 
um, that approach to learning even outside the classroom. But then the other side of that or another side of that is that students who are so used to sitting in a chair and stand music and they don't like the requirement for that sort of learning is to me is very minimal but but students don't the the typical students that we teach are one have never listened to a lot of this music honestly and what i mean by listening to it, i'm like like actually sitting listening to it, thinking about it, thinking about who wrote it, um, or even moving to it. Uh, for a lot of students, to, to them, music is, I'm going to listen to this music, and I'm going to approach this in the same way that I approach, like how you were describing, going to a concert or listening to an orchestra, and you sit there and you say nothing, you do nothing, and you clap, at the appropriate times, and then you, you know, but that's how they would like to engage the music, but that's not how you engage salsa. That's not how you engage merengue. That's not how you engage gospel music or any music outside of that. And some students, I'm gonna be honest, do not like it because it calls attention into the many ways in which they are temporarily, temporarily uh, deficient. And the reason why I say temporarily, because they can, that, that deficiency can change. But it's all about a mindset. It's all about um, being able to put yourself in the space. I think that's why a lot of people don't, don't play jazz. It's because in order to play jazz, you have to open yourself up to, to not just critique from the world, but critique of yourself. And for a lot of classical musicians, that's super scary. I never forget asking, having students clap on beats two and four, which is a very, <laughs> a very important thing in so many cultures. And so many students, particularly white students outside of the suburbs in Chicago could not do that. They found it to be a chore and they were thinking about it. Like I could look at some students and see that they were literally trying to calculate when they were going to hit two and four, whereas some students, they were just grooving with it. And so I think things like that speaks to the fact that one, they were never um, sort of uh, embedded in those sorts of cultures. Like for me, on Saturdays, growing up, it was always LPs in the house. It was always Motown sound, Philadelphia sound, the Temptations. It was always, you know, Marvin Gaye, Tammy Terrell. That was the cleanup music. But outside in my neighborhood, you heard ZZ Hill. You heard um, Bobby Womack. You heard Whitney Houston. You heard Bone Thugs and Harmony. You heard Tupac. Music was always going on. But for these students, that wasn't the case. But also when you ask students to, to think about the socio-political piece, man, it's like silence. 
and I think what's happening now with even with CRT is a representation is a it is a a representation or pieces of it actually happen in our classes too. Like students don't want to go there. They really don't, especially if you are a part of a community that has always benefited, that has always had privilege or right rights, um, not just along the lines of race, but also along the lines of socioeconomic status. And I know that's that's getting into another aspect, but I some students just don't like it. But for me, I I'm like you can either engage and do it. Because you're going to be outside teaching somebody else's babies. You're going to be teaching somebody else's children. And to me, if you can't engage other people's children, to, to me, like, what are you doing? Why are you here? Because you can teach without a license. You can't teach in a K-12 setting, but you can still teach music and you can teach it the way you want. But in this class... It is about equity and to be equitable, you have to be an equitable teacher. And it's not just about waving a, a baton, you know, and not being responsible for rhythm. Like some people don't believe that they're responsible. So um, it's, it's a little bit of both. Like I said, some students are so hungry for that. Like some students who had a taste in high school, now they're it's center in in that space, and they're like, "Oh, I'm gonna eat it up. I'm hungry. I'm gonna eat up all of this, and I'm gonna go out and, and find more." But other students are like, "Oh, I'm here for the class, and I'll do what I can. I'll do what I must, but that's all I'm gonna do." Yeah. Wow. There's so much there. Um, I, I want to say like seventy things. <laughs> Because <laughs> you all have said such awesome things, but I think I'll start here. You know, Milagros, your your story about being a, f a first generation student in a particular program and being brought to the symphony, I think is so telling of both the ways that music functions in a very racist and classed way, right? It's this, I mean, I don't know what this program is. I don't know where it was, but I can't tell you how many times I've seen classical music used in a particular way to sort of uplift people. Oh, well, these poor kids, they don't have culture. Let's give them the highbrow culture, right? And it's it's just so telling. I mean, we have a huge history of this. Like, you know, the 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 Indian industrial schools, for example, classical music was a way to to use the language that they were using then, you know, kind of civilize the savage, right? And we see this throughout history that classical music is used in education as a way to sort of uplift people, whether they're poor or they're people of color or that sort of thing. And so, again, just really sort of telling about the ways that we view classical music. And and even then, you know, and then, of course, you know, you were talking then about different types of uh, music from uh, Puerto Rico and, you know, uh, even then, when we do talk about Puerto Rico, we talk about danza instead of, you know, playing on bomba, which is danza is the high art, right? And so then there's the whole kind of intersection with class that, that goes into it. But getting to my students, you know, I, this is a really interesting question. It's one that I've been thinking about a lot. Um, I would say in general, my students are like like Joyce, I think a lot of them are, are open to it. I think there are some that do feel very uncomfortable about 
the kind of music making processes when you ask them to do something besides classical music to improvise or do music from uh you know other cultures besides classical music and notation reading and that sort of stuff um and that's probably i think that's somewhat of the funnest part of my job is getting students to engage in that because you do see another aspect of them that tends to be silenced and you see them learning things in that. But I think the interesting thing and something that I've really struggled with as someone who is white and is engaged in these sorts of conversations is that I've been doing this for, you know, probably about 15 years now. And I found that um, when I first was doing this, it was about convincing my mostly white students that these things were important, that indeed that things that have to do with race and things that have to do with class and other identities are part of music. I feel like that has kind of passed. Like I don't need to make that argument anymore. It's in the air. The argument now is um, back it up. <laughs> You know, there's a lot of folks and mostly white folks who love to talk the talk and love to uh, be hashtag anti-racist. And then they don't kind of, they don't back it up with the sort of um, the actions that need to, to need to happen. They'd rather just kind of post it on social media. And uh, that's, what I see it as most of the time is not that my students are being malicious or something like that, but they, you know, it's one thing to, it, it's one thing to espouse these ideas. It's another thing than to actually put it in action, right? And it's, it's really difficult, like, you know, Joyce said, teaching other people's babies, right? I think that's the way that Joyce worded it. It's, you know, that's really important that the students don't, they need the sort of, you know, as someone who's, preparing future music teachers, there, there needs to be, uh, they need to know how to put these things in action. And so that's been a, a sort of really preoccupation of mine lately to be super interested and, and just really be attuned to how, what has happened now that these sorts of discourses are in the air and that they're, they're everywhere, right? And to help students see the difference between when it's tokenism and when it's performative and when it truly is doing the work that it's intended to do. And I don't want to make it a binary, it's on or off, it isn't that. But still, you know, there, it's, it, I think there's something very interesting at this particular moment that uh, while, it's, while these sort of discourses have become popular, um, that's a good thing in some ways, but it's also brought some things that I think are uh, interesting problems that need to be addressed. Well, that's, that's a really great point. I appreciate it because in, in other episodes, we have talked about, you know, what this commitment to anti-racist teaching means. And also, right now, we, we're calling it anti-racist teaching. People have been doing this work for many, many years, and it's just been called different things or nothing at all, you know, in the past. And maybe in the future would be called something else. But the spirit of the work is what matters, which is, you know, not only what you are against, but what you're working toward. And um, I appreciate what you both shared about how your students respond, both when they get engaged and pulled into it, and also the resistance that might show up and for whom it shows up and how. I'm wondering if, you know, to close us out for today, if you could share 
maybe a piece of advice um, for other music educators out there who might be interested in taking an anti-racist approach to teaching music or music education. And, and in particular, thinking about, you know, you talk, you both talked about an anti-racist approach to music and music education that is both about the music you're teaching and how you're teaching that music. So it's both the what and the how of that music and, and providing multiple access points um, to music. So I'm wondering what advice would you give to others who wanna try to do this or even to those who have been doing this? And, and, and maybe, you know, what advice would you have for, for someone who has been doing this for years in terms of doing it today in this moment in this particular social political moment in time? Joe, would you be willing to start us off on this one? Sure. Um, I think for someone who uh, hasn't kind of done these things and um, is looking to do it, I think, you know, honestly, a lot of it is just, of course, reading, but I think reading also has its limits. It's, but it's more just, um, you know, engaging in different forms of music making and being sort of uh, just open to, to learning more. I mean, that that's, I know that's not specific advice, but I mean, that's, that's the way you start anything, right? You just have to be curious and uh, be willing to learn and, and have the humbleness that kind of goes into it. Um, for those who have been sort of uh, doing this for a while, I mean, my, my two cents on this is, one, and I would say this, this part to everybody is that, you know, don't confuse diversity with equity and anti-racism, right? Because uh, we know tokenism is obviously a, a clear example of, of uh, diversity that isn't anti-racism or isn't social justice or equity or any of those words you want to use. Um, that, you know, again, like I had started the beginning saying, you know, culture that gets detached from bodies. Um, I think that that is a continual danger in any sort of music or any other sort of arts based education that it that too easily can happen. And so that's something to, um, be really attuned to. I think the other thing that personally I've been thinking about a lot lately is particularly the intersection of these ideas with class and thinking about the ways that um, one, sometimes the discourses that we use in higher ed and the discourses that we tend to use in these sorts of teaching often miss class. Uh, and I think that that's a, that's a unique problem that can, can happen in it. Um, but it's also the ways that, I mean, I'll be frank, I've seen so many people who conflate race and class in uh, pretty, when they're trying to do good, right? And they can do it in, in ways that are problematic. Let's just put it that way. Um, and so I think when we think intersectionally, I know that word is kind of a hot word, um, but when we, when we truly think intersectionally about these sorts of things, particularly with class, um, that I think is, a, is an avenue that, at least in music ed, we have to explore with a little more, um, nuance and in careful ways yeah i i'm with joe you can read which is actually is very helpful but at the same time since we're dealing with with music something that's very much uh it, it's breathing it's living um 
as as teachers, you just can't read about music, honestly. It, I, I mean, I grew up in the South. It's, it's just like cooking, like soul food. Like, I can tell you all day what it is to make a pot of red beans and rice with andouille sausage. Um, but I can't write down the ingredients. It's about you being in the space and the time. And so, you know, and maybe somebody who's out there listening probably saying, oh, I can make a pot of red beans and rice by just reading the recipe. I'm like, can you? But, you know, I, I tell <laughs> I tell students all the time, we we live in a country with with its problems, but we have so many resources. Like literally, we can throw a rock and hit a music making space. We there are churches down the road. There's no reason for people to be teaching gospel music in the same way that they teach the the Dorflay Requiem. There's no reason anymore. It never was a reason. Why not go and engage with these communities? Not just for the sake, oh, I just need to learn this music, but no, you need to know the culture. You need to know the people because that's what makes the music. The music does not exist without those things. Um, it's about going and participating, participating, but not so like I think Joe mentioned earlier, you can go and do this thing and then go home to your nice little, you know, suburban space and shut it off. But it's about participating so much so that you continue this work, even when you are the, the proximity between you and that space is much greater. So it's about reading, it's about educating yourself, but also it's about being honest and putting your, yourself in, in, excuse me, in, in spaces where you have no choice but to be honest. And I think that's, that's one of the issues in music education too, is that so many people want to be comfortable and we've made people feel comfortable. Like it's, it's, it's on the profession too is that we allow people to feel comfortable and we're okay with, with contributing to the issues that we're trying to tackle. It's like us against ourselves. Um, I would also suggest that people, um, you know, you, you don't have to do it by yourself. They're actual like experts <laughs> out in the world. Um, and the reason why I say that is because I know a lot of folks who tried and go and do good things, but they only read an article like last week and they say, oh, I'm going to go and do culturally relevant pedagogy or, oh, I'm going to go and do anti-racist teaching. Um, I'm like, no, that's, that's not how this works because all of the things that we've been talking about in this podcast is very much about the long haul. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. It's not some recipe. None of what we're talking about is, is, um, is a prescription. It's not like the, the instructions you get from Ikea to put, put together a piece of furniture. It is a, it's a commitment. It's, it's a lifelong commitment. And people don't understand that because I think so much of what we've created and we support in our space has allowed for people to perceive that 
just because you read a book, you're good to go. But the responsibility is, is much greater than that. Um, for those folks who are out doing, <clears throat> always seek to, to do better. <laughs> and I, I have to say that. Uh, I tell myself that you have to seek to do better. Um, even though it seems like a lot of our, um, a lot of what we're doing, you know, it seems like it happened 60, 70 years ago, and that may be true, but at the same time, we have to be just as innovative, just as creative, but also just as relentless as a lot of the things that we are working against. Um, <clears throat> yeah, just, just stay informed. Um, as a critical race scholar, I'm trying to figure out how, how to negotiate a lot of the the nonsense that that I'm getting from people who have been disinformed um, from receiving insane emails to, you know, social media stuff. So it's about, again, just being responsible folks, because I think Joe mentioned it at the onset is that in the hands of those who may be well intended, intentioned, they also have the opportunity to also create the biggest harm, to create some of the some of the, the deepest wounds and lashes. So that's what I would suggest: uh, educate yourself, but understand that this is not a prescription or a formula that you can plug in anywhere you go. Um, make your efforts to be a part of your community rather than someone who tries to control your community at your convenience. So that's what I would say. Very, very beautiful answers, you two. Um, I, I can't thank you enough for, for your honesty and, and your vulnerability and, and the answers that you shared. And um, Joyce, I think, uh, and Joe, you both said it very, very well. And it, and it you know, it takes me back to, to high school band that like, excellence or striving for excellence because one is never you know it's it's not it's not an end you know goal we, we always have to continue um chipping away at it is that it it takes place both in and outside the classroom you know we can practice all we want inside the classroom and these settings but we we, we also have to be uncomfortable outside of the classroom and joyce you, you mentioned you know being innovative and relentless in, in the work that we all engage in. And I could pick up on like the responses that you both gave and in your demeanor that like, this is challenging work. And I'm sure that the pushback goes beyond the classroom, perhaps in your departments, perhaps from your institution. And so there's there's a lot of work to be done just just in general to, uh, to really dismantle these oppressive systems. And so um, so I just wanna thank you uh, both, uh, Joe and Joyce for, for this, awesome conversation. We really appreciate the wisdom that you both shared with us today and exposing the, the realities of what it is and what it means to engage in anti-racist teaching through music. It's been so enlightening just to hear your, your educational journey and how you make very intentional efforts to prepare the next generation of scholars and activists by pushing uh, your approaches to music and really tapping into different elements embedded within it. You've certainly made me think about my musical upbringing and, and how I might be able to search for more in the music that I listen to and that I've come to learn. So thank you both for your work, your craft and your contribution to students in the broader world. So 
we really appreciate you both. Thank you. As always, we're thankful for the support from the Office of Diversity and Inclusion and the Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning at the University of Connecticut, because it takes a village and it takes heart.